Thanks so much, Rich. Appreciate that. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be with you all this last couple days since I think Thursday on. Days are getting a little uh, kind of squirrely, uh, knowing what day it is, but uh, I'm glad to be here today and I was happy to preach this morning. I'm really excited to dive on into uh, this last part of Ephesians tonight. We were preaching uh, from Ephesians 5 this morning uh, and looking at a little bit on what it means to bear God's image. Uh, and really, this line in 5.1 where Paul says, be imitators uh, of God. And that part, that first part of 5, is really going to shape a little bit of what we're looking at tonight as we move into the kind of final chapter and a half uh, of the letter. Um, there's different sections of Scripture that kind of stand out maybe a little bit above the text in some ways uh, that, we have a, that we have an affinity with. Things like John 3.16, for God so loved the world, or... 1 Corinthians 13, let love be patient, kind, you, you, you know the list. And those texts are used kind of just wherever we are. They always seem to apply. Um, and that kind of sometimes uh, hides a little bit the fact that all of our documents uh, in the New Testament are from the first century. So from about the year uh, 60 to about the year 90 uh, in the first century. So these are ancient documents. Um, and sometimes we can forget that um, when we're reading them and kind of applying them. Uh, but then we come to passages like we're going to look at tonight and we're reminded all over again, oh, no, no, these are very ancient texts. Because what we're going to see tonight is we're going to be looking at a section, if you have your Bibles or devices, uh, we're going to start in chapter 5, verse 21. And what we're going to meet are what the scholars call household codes. Um, if you've ever read through this section, you see um, some similarities, right? Husbands and wives, parents and children. Um, and these are known as uh, kind of rules for the house. Uh, it's a social script. Um, and so when we confront these sometimes, we're reminded how much these documents are, are ancient documents. Uh, and as people seeking to kind of worship Jesus, follow Scripture, uh, sometimes when we come to these sections of, of Scripture, we can kind of trip over them a little bit because uh, they appear so ancient in them. And so I want to begin this, mor this evening, morning, evening, there we are, uh, with this sections of what we call uh, the household codes. Now this was a known kind of existing thing uh, in the ancient world. And one of the things we often forget is that when Paul meets people, when he forms these little Jesus communities, right, they come in with a house. They come in with a life. They come in from a social world uh, that's a little bit different than I think the one that Paul is trying to model for them, but this is how ancient households run. Uh, these codes, as we call them, uh, actually go all the way back to a Greek guy named Aristotle. You might have heard of him, great philosopher, right? So these are hundreds of years old by the time that Paul deals with them. A lot of other ancient authors are talking about how households ought to run. Uh, and this is really rooted in the premise that the home for the Romans was a microcosm of the nation. And so you have the Roman Empire, which, if you think about it, is a collection of a lot of families. And there are states, and there are cities, and there are villages, and there are towns. But the smallest unit that you can go, to in, go down into, into a social environment, is the home. In fact, if you think about it now, your closest social relationships are usually the person um, in your flat or in your house. Those are the ones that you're interacting with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so for the Romans, this is the smallest building unit, right, of an empire. And so they're really interested in that these little micro-empires, right, are running smoothly, because if they're not, they believe that those problems will kind of reverberate up through the empire, right? 
what is an unhappy empire but unhappy cities made up of unhappy towns, made up of unhappy homes, right? You kind of get their logic there as they're building it. And so these rules to live by were written by philosophers to think about the relationships between those kind of social um, aspects of a home, the people inside of it. And one of the first things we notice, if you've ever read down through this list, in Ephesians 5.21, um, I'll pull up the text for us just so you have it um, in front of you. Um, one of the first things you're going to notice that tells us this is an ancient text is the people who are in the house, right? So we see wives and husbands. We see um, parents and children. And then the last one we see slaves and masters. That's that last one, right, that hopefully looks a little bit different uh, than the homes we live in today, certainly in uh, many places around the world that might not be true. Uh, but we're confronted with a home that looks different than our own. We have homes. We have parents, we have grandparents, we have husbands and wives in our homes, but we don't have uh, enslaved persons. Uh, so this is one of the first kind of instances of saying, okay, this is an ancient text, right? We don't look at it this way. And so what I think Paul is doing here is he's working into uh, an existing code. This is how most of the people who came to trust in Jesus would have run their households. Right? If they're in the Agora, in the marketplace one day, and then in a church the next day, they haven't had a lot of time to kind of work on their home yet. Right? It's kind of imported in. Uh, and in many ways, this was the kind of script for that. So what I find Paul doing is kind of working with what is and then moving that to where he wants it to be. Does that make sense? So he's got to start with where people are, like we say today. But what we're going to find in this list is that he's kind of radically subverting it at little places if you know where to look. There's little things that he's doing to kind of retool that household from the inside out. If you want to know Paul's actual perspective, I think what he would aim at are, are two passages. One is Galatians 3.28, that in the Messiah, there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. Notice some of those categories kind of overlap. And he goes on to say that you are all one, you are all equal, united in Jesus Christ. I think that's one part we want to keep ahead with Paul. That's his kind of, I think, modus operandi. The other one, I think, is another letter in our New Testament called Philemon, or Philemon, depending on where we're at, um, where he actually tells a Christian um, person who has enslaved someone else to welcome back that enslaved person as not a slave, but as a brother. And so it's actually one of the first emancipation documents um, in the ancient world. And so I think we have these two texts ahead of us, radical equality in Galatians 3.28, Paul actually telling someone to set their slave free, and then we have these household codes in the middle. And I think if you put those things together, you can kind of see how Paul is moving his audience from one place to the next, because a lot of this is going to be new. And so he takes this existing code, and I think he's actually going to turn it inside out from the way things go. And we see that in the first part. So one of the first things you ought to notice in 521, which frames all of the, that language about um, husbands and wives, parents and children, and slaves and masters, is this really simple line. And the line is, submit unto one another as to Christ. So be submitted to one another as you are to Christ. So mutual submission here. 
that actually kicks off the entire thing. It's actually going to frame everything that we look at. Now, one of the tricky parts is that in our Bibles, I'm not sure her yours is um, edited, but one of the tricks is that sometimes in your text, 521 will be separated from those paragraphs. This is the NRSV, and I like what they do is they put that all together. But sometimes like the NIV or the ESV, that will be its own line, and then it looks like Paul changes subjects. But what's fascinating there is you notice there in 521, 22, you can track it, right? The word subject is in both of that. And so notice here that Paul is calling everyone to be submitted to one another. So there's not really a hierarchical pecking order like there was in a Roman household code, but rather it's each group looking out, Paul might say, for the interest of one another. How do you look out for the best of that person as they're looking out for the best of you? Uh, and then it's from there, so that kind of, one, radically orients these texts, that Paul is not just talking about wives and children and slaves. He's actually talking about the entire house. And this is already a little bit radical in the first century, because these are the groups that are often mentioned, but the husbands or the fathers, right, are typically left out, right? In the ancient world, we have what's called the pater familias, the rule of the father. Um, that was not helpful. See, the internet can't solve all things. Um, so uh, Paul is going to kind of reorient this because usually those groups right, are the, the highest, most powerful person, not only in the home, but also in the society. Right? It's a patriarchal society. Um, so husbands, fathers, Romans is the highest status you can have in the ancient world. And sadly, that makes the lowest status you can have is non-Roman, a female, enslaved person. It's on a spectrum. They don't view one another equally. And so what Paul's already doing here is showing the equality of one another, that each group is going to be looking out for one another. Um, so this is, one of the, I think, one of the most important verses for understanding the entire uh, passage. Um, it was pretty customary to call on those other groups to submit to their, uh, the highest-ranking male in their life. That was pretty standard. Uh, but within this, Paul's going to do something different, right? He already has mutual submission. And now he's going to offer this radical exhortation uh, to the husbands to love their wives, already submitting. And what's fascinating about that is this is one of the only texts we know of yet in the ancient world that explicitly commands a husband to love their wife. You won't find any other Greek text. Now, they might have assumed that, but this is one of the only texts that actually makes it central to the passage. And so as we think about this text, Paul is doing some kind of interesting things along the way as he works through that. He's calling all members of the group to submit to one another. And it was practically unheard of to ask any high-ranking Roman male to submit to anyone under his status. And Paul's already starting off with that, right? And so it shapes what we're looking at there. Uh, most ancient writers expected wives to obey their husbands. Um, most Greek and Roman thinkers did not think of their wives as equals. Sadly, this is rooted in some kind of erroneous biology that they have, where they believe the genetic makeup of females are actually uh, a corrupt version of DNA off the male. So that's where some of these texts are rooted, right? And then these really kind of really horrific understandings of the human body. Um, and so they kind of root their social order in this order that, well, men have to be there because women can't do certain things. And so already we see a distance within the text 
between hopefully how our own worlds are working sometimes, or ought to work, right, um, and how the ancient world was working. Uh, some of this was pragmatic in these texts. So especially between husbands and wives, one of the things we often forget uh, is that there's a big age gap between husbands and wives. Husbands were typically anywhere from 20 to 30 years older than their spouses. Now, that wasn't for any kind of like creepy factor. Uh, it was more on the nature of um, having children in the ancient world. So women were often married off young, not again for any sort of unusual issues, but the um, death rate for infants is actually pretty staggering. Um, about 30% um, of children didn't make it to their first birthday, so they would die. Only about 50% made it to age 10. And so there's a 50% mortality rate for children in the ancient world. Hence, you need to be trying to have multiple children because not all of them might make it to full adulthood. Why do you need that? There are no um, nursing homes. There are no end-of-life facilities. Um, it's your family that takes care of you when you can't work. There's no social safety nets, right? So children are key to that. Um, and it's actually rooted in that idea in the Old Testament of honor your father and mother. This is much about listening to them. I have little kids right now. Um, as it is being there to take care of them at the end of their life because they took care of you in your most vulnerable state. So having children means that women are getting married, married very young and men are expected uh, to go into their careers, right? Uh, to be able to provide. It's a very different world, right? The other piece along this is that age gap also means education's a big difference. Women were not educated in the ancient world unless you were connected uh, to a high-status male. If you are the emperor's right, daughter, niece, aunt, sister, congratulations, you'll probably get education. If you're outside of that kind of order, uh, you won't because all education is uh, private, essentially, in the ancient world. You have to pay for it. Um, and so they largely, based on their understanding of the female body, did not think educating women was wildly important. So you're beginning to notice just all of the differences, right, that we hopefully have in, uh, in our society between how we're viewing one another across spectrums, how marriages are just looking more equal, right? Often these times we're married to people roughly closer in age. Uh, both groups are probably educated at some or very nearly the same level. Um, and so we're already dealing with kind of a different uh, kind of world here as we think through this. Uh, and again, Paul, I think, is modeling this on that verse in 5.1, be imitators of God. And so there's an there's a aspect of love, there's an aspect of uh, forgiveness there uh, as we work through these uh, passages. Um, as I mentioned, um, Paul upholds kind of this idea that a common knowledge most Romans would understand the phrase, wives submit to your husbands. Uh, what they would not understand, right, remember, is that 5.21, that that actually is a two-way street, not a one-way street. And so as often as we work through these passages, we can kind of get hyper-focused on particular verses. But it's always helpful to remind ourselves of 520. This is a two-way street, not a one-way street, that both groups uh, are doing this. Um, children that come next, right? That's the next closest social uh, relationship of parents and children and how they relate to one another. Um, and many of these Texts believe that honoring one's parents was the most important commandment. Again, in a world without social safety nets, we say children are the future, right? And they are, but they're very much so in that first century world. They are the ones uh, going to be taking care of that. 
Um, and so as we think about these texts, Paul is seeking to order a house that he's inherited uh, in light of the story of Jesus in the gospel. And so all of these relationships matter. That's actually why Paul's addressing them. Indirectly, we learn, right, that every sphere of life is meant to bear out God's image. That every part of our life, nothing is left untouched. And so even these smallest places, um, they become radically uh, important. Um, the next one is uh, slaves and masters. And as I began, right, I said this is uh, probably the most um, distinct element of this text. Right? We still have people getting married. So we still have husbands and wives today. We still have parents and children. Uh, but this one is a little bit uh, different. And so what Paul is working with here, I think, is, uh, again, a, a thing that he wants to move the community on, more towards a position in Philemon, uh, in Galatians 3.28. Um, and Paul is one of only a few ancient writers to believe that slaves were equal uh, spiritually to their masters. This isn't a common thing that goes uh, in the ancient world. One of the other pieces, again, that I think we see Paul kind of retooling um, that structure from the inside out is take the initial command to be submitted to one another. How does that work out in a relationship that is built on hierarchy? How does that work in a situation where the inequality is the essence of the relationship? What you're seeing here is Paul is saying, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat this line, but I'm going to radically subvert it by saying, Masters, be submitted to your slaves. And when you say it like that, you begin to see kind of the, the dissonance there. What does that look like in practice? Has Paul set a little debt charge underneath the command that, yes, this is, this is the way houses run, quote unquote, but here's how I want you to operate in this house? How does it look for the master to submit to the person that they've enslaved? We find this elsewhere in Paul's letters where we read commands sometimes and we read them kind of abstracted as like that's equal to everybody. One of my favorites is Galatians chapter 6 where Paul says, uh, bear one another's burdens. And we go, oh yeah, that's a great thought, Paul. Thank you for that. I think we should all help each other out. I know I need help sometimes and I want to help other people. So this is great. I'm moving in a couple weeks. I'm going to need someone to help me. So like my friends are going to come out and help me with my burden. Because we move from that position of equality, right? We should hopefully believe that everyone is equal. But again, place that simple command, bear one another's burdens, back in an ancient house. What does that look like in context? What does that look like for a master who believes the, the, the gospel of Jesus to put that into practice, especially for this group? How do they bear the burdens when their life is oriented around other people bearing their burdens, right? That's literally why they're there. Um, and then enslaved persons, their life is oriented on bearing someone else's burdens. So I don't think Paul's coming in saying, hey, do more, do more, do more to one group. I think the radical call in that very simple line is for the persons who've enslaved others to start taking on those burdens. I like to use a little bit of theological imagination when you read the text, and you might picture prayer time in the house church. What are the prayer requests that kind of come up around the room that we can pray for? When it says, you know, Paul told us to bear one another's burdens, so let's share our burdens. And one person in the back raises their hand. They're an enslaved person. And they look across the room, and the person that has 
sadly bought them is sitting on the other side of the room. How do they share in that context? They raise their hand and say, yeah, my life is really hard because of here's what my week has looked like. Here's what, how I've been mistreated. Here's how I've been bearing burdens. And so it's this really kind of explosive text, right, that seems so simple on the surface, but is actually doing really deep work underneath some of these ancient practices uh, to undo them. And so we see that most poignantly, I think, um, in this one. So as you think about these texts, there's all ways in which our lives look different than this world, hopefully. I know history, sometimes when you study it, you get a little bit depressed because you start reading, you go, oh yeah, that's the first century world. And you're like, oh wait, that looks a little bit too much like my world. We still have many times, both inside and outside the church, both in society, where people are not treated equally, right? Where people are not respected uh, for their dignity and worth, where people are mistreated. Um, and so sometimes we, we see distance from ourselves in this text, and sometimes we realize maybe we've changed some of the terms, but the structure is still kind of there. Um, and so Paul is, again, seeking to work to move his congregation from one place uh, to the next. And so this is, in the, in the first century world, I think a rather explosive understanding of a really everyday average household code. He takes what is, he sees the gospel of Jesus coming in and transforming those relationships, and what gets out on the other side looks different than where he started. Because if each group begins to practice that be submitted to one another, these hierarchies begin to break down. It doesn't mean that those persons stop being husband or wife or parents or children, but those relationships look radically different. And it's rooted in a sense that God, who is the source of all power, creativity, and authority, has partnered with creation, has sought to not use power and authority for their, his own benefit, but use it on behalf of some, someone other than God's self. And that begins to shape the way Paul thinks about this story. We have a few more minutes before we uh, wrap up. Paul moves on from there uh, in the last half of the letter uh, to begin to work through uh, this conclusion. And he gives a rather interesting analogy. It's, an it's an analogy from the battlefield. He talks about one of the more famous sections of Scripture, uh, putting on the whole armor uh, of God. This is something that many ancients would have been familiar with. They probably saw a Roman soldier uh, from time to time in their city or town. Uh, those probably weren't good experiences. Um, and throughout the Old Testament, God is depicted uh, as a warrior in full armor. And it's God kind of carrying out justice on behalf uh, of his people. Again, a Roman soldier would be nearby, but of course they've seen different interactions with that uh, kind of power. Uh, and as Paul looks at these gifts, as he looks at these elements of the Christian life, he relates them to this battle. Right? Remember, Paul will also say that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so he sees this life as one is not neutrality, but one that is shaped by uh, counter forces, if you will. Um, but what's so interesting, right, about Paul's uh, analogy is that almost all of the weapons are defensive, right? Uh, prayer is central, scripture is central, uh, Jesus is central. And Paul, um, uh, for example, omits a couple pieces of Roman soldier. Uh, uh, army uh, units. He, he omits this sword that's usually used for offense. Um, he actually doesn't include that. 
Um, rather, he wants his readers to know that they can rely on Scripture and the Spirit uh, and the Word, and they can be ready for this battle uh, that they're in. Um, what we find in here is that Paul is kind of um, empowering his communities to think about themselves as active kind of participants, right, in the story of God. They're not sitting back, they're not just slouching, uh, but they're active and they're ready um, and they're kind of on pursuit. Of course, this is Paul's spiritual uh, kind of metaphor for that Christian life. And so throughout uh, the second half of Ephesians, Paul is deeply interested in his communities bearing out God's image, not just in the spiritual realm, but in their homes. Paul wants their homes to begin to look different. And what's rather fascinating is that over the course of um, decades, we find Christians doing radical things in their environments. In the second and third century, we have texts where um, most subversively enough, women are not getting married. They're pursuing singleness, and they're becoming martyrs for their faith. We have several uh, women martyrs in the second and third centuries uh, who kind of resist the status quo and, and go out on their own to, to serve Christ. We have radical things happening with, with the topic of slavery. We have several instances in the early church fathers and mothers where um, Christians will buy back the freedom of slaves and set them free. That they'll go down to slave markets and purchase slaves and then allow them to go free. Uh, they'll go to plantations and, and set people free. And so it becomes this process by which as, even as they look at these codes, these household codes, they realize that Paul's intention is moving in a rather different direction and they begin to, uh, to change their world as they love those around them, as they treat one another um, with equality and dignity. It's not a surprise that many women join the Jesus movement because in there they're treated as equals with one another. No longer do they have a second-class status, but they're treated as leaders, as people who lead the community, as full participants. Um, and this is starting to upset the Roman world in, in a variety of ways and, and pave the way for some ideas uh, of equality that we still have today. Some of them are rooted uh, in this kind of ideas that Paul and the early Christians start to espouse uh, in the first century. And so... As we work through this letter, Paul is deeply interested in these communities um, coming from a world but not staying in that world. And that's kind of the difficulties throughout all of Paul's letters is that they come uh, preformed in a way. It's not as if they meet Jesus and they go, okay, now we need to figure out how to run a house. They already come doing that. And the big question throughout the New Testament, uh, if you look at various places, is what social script is going to be enacted in this space? Not just the church, but the home. Is it going to be one that's rooted in this idea that God has saved everyone equally, therefore everyone is equal? Or is it going to be the kind of Roman hierarchical pecking order? And so we see that problem in Corinth, we see it in Ephesus, we see it in Galatia, and it's all about this crossing of cultures. How are they going to begin to live out this radical story amidst a world that doesn't look anything like that? And that's where we kind of come full circle, right? Sometimes our problems are different than the ones we see in Scripture, but the, the channels of those problems are often the same. How do we live out a, a life that's radically different while also being in and of a world that often looks so uh, askew um, from what the gospel requires? 
Um, there's this tension, and we'll kind of finish with this before we um, maybe have some questions and things like that. Uh, there's this tension throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament through two similar concepts. Uh, one is holiness, and one is hospitality. You see this root in the Old Testament, be holy for I am holy, right? Separate, that's what holiness means. It means to be distinct. But then also in the Old Testament, you have this idea of be hospitable to everyone you meet so that you'll be a light unto the nations. How do you work out that divine tension? Be holy and hospitable. Be set apart and welcoming. That's a tension we still face, right? We say, okay, we might want to go to this side, or we might want to go to that side, and we find this, this divide. But that's, I think, a divine tension that Jesus gives us. In fact, we see throughout his ministry, right, that's what he gets accused of. You're not being holy enough. You're eating with tax collectors and sinners. You're being, what, too hospitable. And what we find in the story of Jesus is that this radical idea that I think Paul is riffing off of, that hospitality becomes a means of holiness. That filled by the Spirit, these communities can be radically hospitable while remaining radically holy. And that's a tension we face today as well. How do we navigate these deep commitments while also being a community where people, um, anyone, can come. We find ourselves right in the middle of that, and it seems to be a tension uh, that the people of God have had all throughout the story, and one in which God, I think, asks us to step into so that we might trust him, so that we might have faith and faithfulness and be dependent on God and his actions.